I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. Fire Shut Up in My Bones is the poignant memoir written by New York Times columnist Charles Blow in 2014. Renowned trumpeter and composer Terrence Blanchard, along with librettist Casey Lemons, turned it into an opera that debuted at Opera Theater of St. Louis in 2019. But in September 2021, Fire Shut Up in My Bones broke through a huge artistic barrier. Not only did it open the new season at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City, it made history as the first opera by a Black composer to be performed at the Met. For Blow, as amazing as it is to have his life turned into an opera, having his experience being molested as a child and bullied is difficult to relive. I will say that, you know, it is it is a strange feeling and I could not stay in it, right? So I've... I've seen the opera once in St. Louis. I saw it once in New York. And that was about as much as I could, that I wanted to see it. For me, this was a buried part of my life. And I resurrected it to write about it because I thought it would be helpful to other people. In this conversation, first recorded on December 2nd for Washington Post Live, Blow and Blanchard talk more about what it took to turn Fire Shut Up In My Bones from memoir operatic masterpiece. So Terrence, I'll start with you. What did it mean to you to have this work uh, open the season at the Met? Well, I mean, it meant a lot, obviously, you know, to be the first thing to open the season after this 22-month uh, period of isolation. You know, it was a really powerful thing for the performers involved, for all of the, the, the people on the staff and everybody who came to the performance, you know, so I was really excited about the entire thing. And, and why do you think it took until 2021 for hmm. an opera by back, Black composer to debut at the Met? From what I understand, you didn't hmm. know that until a reporter mentioned it to you. No, I, I had no idea. The answer to the first part of the question, I have no idea. That's a question for the Met. I think you would have to ask them. I just remember looking in a ledger where they had this information about operas that had been rejected by the Met. And William Grant Still, who's a great African-American composer, his name was in there three times. And actually, I also saw some women's names in the same book. You know, So I was really just heartbroken by what I was reading. And to think that it took this long to have such such an event occur is a travesty. But kudos to uh, Peter Gelb and Yannick and everybody there at the Met for wanting to right this wrong and move forward. So Charles, I wanna get into, into your memoir, which is the basis of this opera before coming back to Terrence, but your memoir uh, is poignant and powerful as it is painful. You write about the bullying and the sexual abuse you endured among other painful memories and encounters. Did you have any, it's one thing to write it in a book, but did you have any trepidation uh, in your story being converted into an opera? I don't think trepidation is the right way to put it. Uh, I think, you know, there is, uh, in the writing of a memoir, there is, there are two things operating simultaneously. There's the story of your life, and then there's the craft of writing. And so you can appreciate the craft of the art separately from uh, whatever ups and downs may have happened in the life. Uh, and I think that, that 
when thinking about translation of the art into other forms, that makes complete sense. I have no real um, worry about uh, the story being translated, but I will say this though. I mean, a lot of people have, you know, uh, asked me about how it feels and your life and you're alive and, you know, people who have operas about their lives are generally not alive if they're about real people. Um, I will say that, you know, it is it is a strange feeling and I could not stay in it, right? So I've I've seen the opera once in St. Louis. I saw it once in New York. And that was about as much as I could, that I wanted to see it. Not because I didn't appreciate it. It was beautifully done. Terrence's music is amazing. Uh, Kissy's writing is great. The performers are great. Uh, it is just that, you know, when, for me, this was a buried part of my life. And I resurrected it to write about it because I thought it would be helpful to other people. And that, you know, that's, uh, I wrote over nine years and uh, not all the time. And then it published it. It was great. We did the book tour and I basically let it go back to sleep, you know, and I, and then to create, uh, to, to uh, embark on this journey where Terrence and Kessie and Jim were turning into an opera, I had to resurrect it again. And then to go back and see it, I had to resurrect it again. And it is. It is not the easiest part of my life. It is, some parts of it is beautiful, but some parts of it is traumatic. And you just can't stay in that. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I need to make sure that I honor the fact that it's happening and also remember that that is not currently my life and that I can't stay in that and I can't relive that on a stage mm -hmm. over and over and over Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Terrence, I mean, it's very uh, powerful what Charles just said, that he wrote the book. Mm -hmm. And I remember interviewing mm -hmm. Charles at Aspen Ideas after it came out. And I told everyone in mm -hmm. the audience, if you want to understand the power that drives mm -hmm. his columns in The New York Times, read this mm -hmm. book because it's all it is all revealed. And as he said, mm -hmm. he let it go back to sleep. What was it about Charles's memoir, about his story that said mm -hmm. to you, I want to do something bigger with this. And how long, how hard did you have to convince Charles to say yes? <laughs> well, convincing Charles wasn't wasn't that hard. I mean, he he really didn't uh, see how we were going to make it into an opera, and, and uh, me trying to explain it, I wasn't going to be good at it. So I let Jim do all of that work. But <laughs> you know what what he just talked about was extremely powerful, and was one of the reasons why I wanted to do his story. You know, when I read the book. Uh, obviously, I wasn't molested as a kid, but there are parts of the, his story that I, that do resonate in my life in terms of, you know, wanting to belong to a community that doesn't necessarily understand who you are, what, what you're about. And truthfully, at a time when you're trying to figure it out yourself, you know what I mean? You just realize that some of the things in your community are not for you and some things are. And that can be traumatic and be confusing for a kid. But I think the most important thing about it all for me was to see Charles's life as a successful writer, to see where his career has gone and how he's blossomed into this beautiful spirit that has helped a lot of people grapple with very tough topics, you know, in, in our daily lives. And I think, you know, to show 
the trajectory from him going through that and coming through all of that to be this writer in my mind was something that I thought could really help a lot of people. And truth be told, you know, at each performance, you know, afterwards, there's literally someone who will come up to me and say thank you because they were either, you know, a victim of child abuse or they had other issues that they were dealing with. And uh, the opera allowed them first to grieve and accept what it is that they've gone through. Uh, and hopefully, you know, move, be able to move forward, you know, and, and become and empowered, you know, in, in their progression. Mm -hmm. You know, in the in the um, in, in the opera and in the intro that we just showed, um, the very last scene that we showed um, is the young Charles, Charles, Charles baby and um, and then older Charles. Uh, and then um, I believe it's the the uncle in a very tense scene, and in Charles in the opera, the characters that are playing as we saw in that scene, they are layered strategically to mimic the style you employed in your memoir. Um, and I'm wondering, um, when, in doing that, where you it seems as though um, they were your Terence was trying to to guide the boy through his well. The older Charles is trying to guide the younger Charles um, through his formative years. And I'm wondering, how did Terrence do in portraying your coming to terms with the trauma you experienced as a child through this opera? Well, I, well, first of all, I think, you know, uh, they were free to do things that, that I couldn't in memoir, right? So to present both characters on stage at the same time, I, I couldn't do that in, a, in, in written form. Uh, to uh, personify destiny or fate was something that I could not do. Uh, I mean, I guess I could have, you know, if I thought to do it in that way, but that's not the kind of classical way to write memoir, and that wasn't a way that I used. So they used a lot of devices that I uh, did not use in, 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 in the book. So uh, that was interesting to see how that all worked. And, it, and I think, you know, as a, as a creative device, it, it did work. Um, the uh, the the thing about uh, the opera, though, I, I think Terrence or someone told me this. Terrence, did you tell me this about like how much longer it takes to sing a word than to say it? Yeah, right. Yeah, the the opera is incredibly short, <laughs> right? <laughs> Relative right. to what the right. you have to sing the whole book, you'd be there all night, right? So, right. so you have to make artistic choices about what is included, what is not included. Also, it is a stage production, so you can't constantly change the scene as you might do in, you, in a book, you can do it as often as you like. In movie format, you can do it a bit more. On a stage, there's only so many times you can wheel that scene off and bring another one on. So you, mm -hmm. you are also then trapped by how many scenes you can present. And so they had to make all those choices. And so I was I was very interested, particularly the first time, to see which choices they made about which things they the, the to exclude uh, and, and to maintain story and to develop characters and 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 the arc of the narrative. Um, and you know, and I think it, it works as its own piece of art. Uh, I I do believe that, you know, that it does because opera also has to be dramatic 
there are a lot of subtle moments that were important to me that just didn't make it right so that's just that's just part of translation um so so i i try not to gauge it against the book but to accept that it is a different new piece of art created by terence and cassie and james and that i i appreciate it for that Mm-hmm. So, Terrence, let's talk about uh, about the nitty gritty here, because Fire Shut Up In My Bones is your second opera. Your first mm-hmm. was Champion in 2013, mm-hmm. which was directed by my old friend James Robinson. You mentioned Jim earlier. That's who you were talking about. And, and James is the co-director with Camille Brown of Fire. Mm-hmm. But opera is not your first medium for musical composition. You are best known as a multiple Grammy-winning jazz trumpeter and and band leader, and I'll add great musician, great jazz musician, musician. anyone who has watched a Spike Lee movie over the last 30 years has heard and been moved by your stirring majestic scores. So given that you're part of the jazz firmament, what inspired opera as the format for this specific story? Well, you know, one of the things a lot of people who know me, they know that my father was an amateur baritone. He loved opera. So I heard opera a lot growing up in the house. And one of the things that has always has always been curious to me, you know, about, especially in the African-American community, is how there's so many people in our community who love the music and love opera, but there's not many formats or pieces actually created for them. I mean, we could talk about Porgy and Bess, but still created for them by African-Americans. I mean, you know, at at least, let let me put it this way, there are pieces out there, but pieces that are gaining traction, you know, and to have the opportunity to do something at the Met, you know, on this scale was a very intriguing thing for me. Now, obviously we started in, uh, in St. Louis and one of the things that I really started to realize immediately was that African-American opera singers don't get a chance to really fully bring to the table everything that they grow up with. Most of them grow up singing in the church or singing rhythm blues or jazz. And when it comes time to sing Tosca, you know, or La Boheme or or Turandot, they're told to turn those things off, you know? And for me, that's a big part of who they are. And one of the things that I love in, in, in being in this world is that I get a chance to create some pieces that allow them to bring all of who they are, you know, to the fray. I mean, when you listen to Angel Blue, when she sings uh, Peculiar Grace, she she mixes her operatic voice, you know, with with this gospel spiritual uh, uh, color that's very moving and very haunting, you know. And I think when you put that together with great acting, great scenery, the entire art form is a very powerful way to tell stories. You know, I've been telling people, stop thinking opera. This is the highest form of musical theater that you can ever experience. And I truly believe that. And with the performances of Fire, I think, you know, people were extremely moved by the entire production, by seeing it all come together, you know, and there's nothing like that that I've ever experienced. Camille Brown, who's also the opera's choreographer, she said in an interview that what comes with you being the first Black composer on the Met stage is, quote, the Black lens, and along with that comes Black culture spoken through or danced through 
the black mm -hmm. lens. I mean, you mm -hmm. talked about that um, just a moment ago, but Charles, I would love to get your, your perspective on that. How important is it that uh, what, what Terrence was just talking about, uh, one, allowing black uh, opera performers to bring all of themselves uh, to a role, but also to have a story such as yours told through the lens of a black composer and told through the performances of, of um, black opera singers? Well, I, I, I've said this before. I, I, was, I was very happy that, you know, th this opera bought, brought uh, uh, opera to the black experience, not black experience into the opera, meaning, mm -hmm. you know, it needed to come to, it needed to come to us, right? And to uh, understand that you can have a, a beautiful production, but also an amazing story that just is about us. It doesn't depend on, it is not reactionary to other people, it is not a response it is an expression of the human condition as expressed by human beings. These human beings mm -hmm. happen to be black. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that was important to me because there are almost no white characters in my book because it's not about characters because these are just people in my life. And I grew up in an all-black town uh, mm -hmm. around, it went to all-black schools. It, I was around black people. And that wasn't a choice to exclude anybody else. It was just a, it was just the circumstance under which I grew up, uh, mm -hmm. and so to be true to that, that means that you do bring black culture in abundance to this production. And can can uh, I add to that? You know, sure, go ahead, just something real quick. You know, it's 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 really beautiful to hear Charles say that because one of the things that we kept thinking we didn't know it was an all black cast. We didn't realize it was an all-black cast. We were just doing an mm. opera. We were doing Charles's story. And again, it was somebody else that came up to us and said, well, man, this, this is an all-black cast. You know, and we were like, oh, I guess it is. You know, so we, to his point, we weren't trying to exclude anybody. We weren't trying to necessarily make a statement on that front. We were just trying to tell his story the best way we mm -hmm. could. You know, one thing um, that came up in, in my research and all this, when Fire was performed in St. Louis, it was a, I believe it was the dancers were, it was a co-ed group uh, of mm -hmm. dancers, but Fire on the Met stage mm -hmm. was all men. What mm -hmm. was the thinking behind that, particularly on the, the fraternity, the step scene? Well, I think that was a choice that was made by Camille and Jim. You know, uh, the story was, was definitely about Charles and Charles, you know, struggling with his own sexuality. And when you look at the ballet that opens up the second act of the opera, I think Camille did an amazing job of creating something that told his story, you know. Um, so it, it, it was a choice. It was a creative choice to kind of help push along the narrative of of what was going on in Charles's life at that time, you know, um, and then I think it makes it even more powerful a moment when he meets Greta in the opera and then he starts to date her and then he starts to reveal to her everything that happened to him, you know. Um, but it was a it was a beautiful choice because I, when you see the step show, you know, when you see the ballet, those dancers did an amazing job. As a matter of fact, you know, I always kid him 
You know, I said, man, I've never seen nobody get a standing ovation just for walking on the stage. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the first time I've ever seen that. <laughs> I want to talk about one of the op- the the arias, "Ben Don't Break," um, mm-hmm. and the the powerful lyrics go, "I sway, I sway, my roots run deep. I draw my strength from underneath. Mm-hmm. I bend, I don't break, I sway." And to hear um, to hear uh, Will Liverman deliver those words is so powerful. But what just sort of knocked me back and moved me to no end was when the I becomes we mm-hmm. uh, towards the end of the, the aria. And I, like I said, I can't even begin to describe how much it moved me. What have you heard from others about that aria? Oh, well, for me, you know, that's one of the, the, the pivotal moments, that and peculiar grace. You know, um, when you say we bend, we don't break, it seems to be the rallying cry for a lot of people, a lot of disenfranchised people, a lot of people who have suffered through the development of this country. You know, um, I look at everything that I grew up, witnessed growing up, and just trying to maintain daily life, you know, in my family and the struggles that my parents went through, you know, to keep us afloat and then, you know, keep me in music lessons and and keep me pushing forward and allowing me to have a dream. You know, there were moments, you know, that were very stressful for all of us. And I think everybody can really relate to that. It's one of the things that I kept hearing from a lot of people who came to the opera. That thing was something that they started to chant you know, outside of the performances. You know, it's one of the things I think that even some of the dancers they would talk about before the show would 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 start. You know, we bend, we don't break. You know, and uh, it became a rallying cry for a lot of students that also had seen the 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 um, the broadcast of the opera. Mm-hmm. You know, Charles, that that phrase, um, we bend, we don't break, we sway. It would be like a nice mantra for what you bring to your your columns at the times is a perfect uh, caps- uh, encapsulation um at least to my but, mind uh, go ahead charles about that? um this is one of those instances where you know when you do something artistically you you come to it with one sensibility but the people who appreciate it see something bigger mm. than what you mm. were intending mm-hmm. I, I first heard people talk about it as as a uh, as a kind of a metaphor for black struggle in America only in reviews of this opera, not even in the book. Uh, and that was not, and I could understand that, but it was not <laughs> it was not the intention. Uh, you know, the that that idea came from for me a communion with nature, right? And mm. that and that I spent many days uh, uh, kind of meditating in a forested area that, that where the trees to me look like a cathedral, right? And so it became for me a metaphor for a religious space. And in that space, the way I describe it, the trees spoke to me and taught me things 
about resilience and weathering the storms and bending but not breaking, about being deeply rooted. Um, and that I had carried that lesson from nature, from those trees out into my life. And that I thought about them all the time in that way, that if they can weather that hurricane, I can. And so it was very specific to me. I wasn't trying to make a statement about blackness in America, but then when other people made that connection, I thought, oh, that's, you could say that too, you know, but it was, <laughs> but it's very interesting to me how art can speak to other people in other ways. You know, and that's what's funny. I, I forgot to mention because it's plainly obvious that the reason why those lyrics hit me, um, you know, so so hard in a beautiful way was that, yeah, as a black man listening to the words, seeing it, seeing them performed, just spoke to um, something that was just larger than the mm -hmm. the intention of those words. But in the five minutes that we have left, real quick, I'm gonna go to a, an audience question for Terrence. Um, Terrence, this comes from Scott in Iceland. Did the existence of large-scale jazz works by Coltrane or Ellington have an effect on the composition? Were the things you were there things you avoided or things you referenced? Well, I never really try to reference anything directly because you know I'm always trying to find my own voice. But I'm always influenced by anything great, you know. And of 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 course, you know anything Duke Ellington has done a John Coltrane, those are, happen to be two of my favorite artists, has had an effect on me, you know. But, you know, I studied with a guy named Roger Dickinson who studied in Austria and came back to New Orleans and to teach. And he taught me composition from the time that I was 16 years old. And he's the kind, he's the guy that whenever I have a major project or something to do, I still call him to this day, you know. And when I called him to do my first opera, Champion, I remember he told me, he said, stop thinking about you know, writing an opera. He said, tell a story, tell a story. And that's what I've tried to do. The difference is, is that I've tried to bring all of my background to bear. That's why we call it an opera in jazz and not a jazz opera. We don't want people to think that you're going to hear the Basie band or the Ellington band when you come to the performance. But the DNA from all of those languages and all of the, and, and both cultures will exist because I'm also a big fan of Puccini as well. You know, La Boheme is one of my favorite operas of all time, like it is for most. So I'm trying to use everything at my disposal to to tell this story in the most succinct way I can, and also right. the most interesting, interestingly artistic way that I can. Well, I'm sorry, Terrence. My favorite opera is Tosca. And Leontine Price will always be Tosca to me. All right, in the okay. in the two minutes <laughs> in the two minutes that we have left, I have a question for each of you. And Terrence, um, I'll have you go first. What do you want people to take away from the work you've done in Fire Shut Up in My Bones? I want people to learn that no matter what it is you can you go through, you know, the the old saying is God never gives you anything you can't handle. You know, you you have the strength you know, to, to, to forge ahead and, and persevere, you know, this and Charles life, his life, uh, his existence is an example of that. And Charles, what do you want people to take away from your story? Well, first, I, you know, like, like Terry said, God will give you too much head. Sometimes you're like, sir, ma'am, who told you that? Like, <laughs> who told you these children to hold on this? Somebody lied to you. Anyway. Uh, but, uh, I think the thing to take away for me is 
the realization that there are no small lives, that every life is grand, right? And mm. so uh, it was hard, you know, it was the biggest thing about this being on the Mets stage to me was to hear references to my hometown mm. or to my church or whatever. Because, and, and I, you know, I was back in, in my hometown for, of 900 people for Thanksgiving and that, and they, you know, they just freak out because they're like, who would have thought that, that this town would be mentioned in anything, right? And because we thought ourselves living in a tiny space that that time and the world was passing over, but there are no spaces like that. Every life is an opportunity. Every life is a story. Every life is grand. Charles Blow, Terrence Blanchard, thank you so much for coming to K-Part. It truly has been an honor. Oh, thank, thank you for you having so me. Much. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to K-Part. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Capehart J.